Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the Dr. Christian Heim podcast. We're so glad you joined us. My name is Caroline Heim and I'm sitting here with Dr. Christian Heim. This is part of a series on how to prevent depression in my life. Okay, so today we're looking at how modern life contributes to depression and preventing it with values. Ready, ready, ready? I certainly am. Okay. So could you go over what causes depression? So once again, rather than looking at causes, which presupposes a simple cause and effect relationship, we're looking at risk factors because depression is really quite a complex thing. And what I want everybody to remember is the risk factors for depression. So I've put together this acronym that goes by GPCALL, G-P-C-A-L-L. And this stands for the risk factors of depression. Genetics, personality, chronic illness, chronic pain, chronic stress, abuse and alcohol, life events, be they positive or negative, and a lack of love, even in society. And you can choose to change the controllable risk factors, as we saw last episode. Okay, so I know lots of people worry about this, but how much do genetics contribute to depression? Yes, you see, this is what happens. Um, You can't control your genetics, and this is what people end up worrying about. So people end up focused on the genetics, which is something you can't do something about, rather than be focused on the things that they can do something about. But I will go through the genetics. What we're finding is that if you have one parent with a depression, your chances of getting depression are somewhere between 10 and 20%. If you have two parents with depression, your chances, your likelihood goes up to something like 50%. But you see, those numbers are changing because depression is rising in our society. And we don't understand how the inheritance works. We haven't yet found specific genes get passed down that turn into depression. So we don't know if people inherit a gene. We don't know if they inherit a certain personality trait. We don't know if it's behavioral patterns that they've seen. We don't know if it's clusters that happen together because you live with people who share the same life circumstances. But it is overwhelmingly the environment that contributes a lot more to depression than the genetics. Okay, so if it's environment, how does it contribute to depression? Whenever we look at disease in medicine, we see that it's basically made up of a combination of genetics and the environment. So the environment is anything that happens to you after you're born. And I can most confidently say that What happens in depression, what contributes to depression, has more to do with the environment than with genetics. How can I be so confident? This is why. Because we see big rises in depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses in our society. I mentioned the the 63% rise in depression for people under 18. I mentioned the 47% rise in depression for under 35s. Now, this can't be due to genetics because our genetic makeup hasn't changed for about 60,000 years. It has to be in our environment. All right, so let's go through GP call and see what you can do something about. You can do something to limit your intake of alcohol and drugs. You can go easy on yourself when you suffer loss. You can manage your reactions to life events. 
and you can take care of your greatest assets, which are your relationships. But, and this is what this particular episode is all about, you can become aware of what modern day living is doing to your mood and what it's doing to your brain. Because you see, this is what I see. I see a lot of people that are very, very busy. And I've got to say that includes me. And what is happening is our modern living is increasing our lack of love because we don't have time for our family. We don't have time for friends or the people around us. We're all chasing something. We're all chasing something elusive. And that increases our chronic stress because of the chasing, because of the isolation and because of our expectations. It's so much about a lack of time. So how does modern living lead to a lack of love? Lack of time. We're all so busy or we're also isolated that we don't spend our time with other people. We spend it alone. There is so much isolation in the world. I'll just give you an example. I often ask people how they spend their festive days. Some people, a lot of people, spend the festive days alone. Some people begrudgingly go to a family that they don't get on with. For some people, the festive days have no meaning for them and they don't see anybody on that day. The isolation is actually heartbreaking and isolation and loneliness are risk factors for depression. Yet in our society, we have this emphasis on success, making it, getting better. And because of that, the people that have work tend to put productivity before people. People are working very hard or we're doing other things in our spare time and it's not always involving people. And the other thing that I see, and this is the effect of social media, is we're not being authentic with each other. We're not being real. And because of that, there's more of a lack of love in our society. Now, you can have both. You can do the stuff. You can go after what you believe you need to do, but you have to take care of your greatest assets, which are your relationships. Okay, so in the last episode, you talked a lot about chronic stress. Yes. So how does modern living lead to chronic stress? All right. Now, in the last episode, I talked about chronic stress leading to inflammation. And I gave you that flamethrower analogy of how inflammation is made up of heat and redness and swelling and pain and not being able to function well. Well... As strange as it sounds, this is what our society does to us. It actually leads to inflammation. And it's like this. Many more of us expect more success at the moment. And so we are success driven. This leads to worry. And worry is like a flamethrower in our mind. We make comparisons with other people. And the strange thing is we compare our inner life with what other people look like. And we think that we're missing out or we're not doing terribly well. And this leads to worry. And then there's all the change in society. All the change means that we don't have stability. We don't get to relax. And this becomes a chronic stress, which leads to that flamethrower situation again. And when we are not authentic, it means that we can't be our true selves with other people, which means that we're effectively being alone. And then, and this is really heartbreaking, more and more people are living with a lack of meaning or purpose 
in their lives. They actually have to ask themselves, why am I alive? And again, that leads to worry and a flamethrower situation in the brain. Okay, you went through those a little bit too quickly. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, uh, isolation and loneliness, there's so many people that are isolated and lonely. Yes. How does that contribute to depression? Okay, isolation and loneliness brings you down. So in your brain, down go the neurotransmitters, down goes serotonin, down goes noradrenaline, down goes dopamine. Down also goes oxytocin. Now, I'll talk a lot about oxytocin in episodes to come. Oxytocin is the love drug. Oxytocin is there when you give somebody a hug. Oxytocin is there when you shake somebody's hand. Oxytocin is there whenever you have a trusting interaction with another person. It feels good. But if you're isolated and lonely, oxytocin levels are down. And so when you get all these brain transmitters down in your brain, that becomes a risk factor for depression. Okay, so can you just clarify the success and fame? You said that they contribute to depression or an emphasis on them. Well, yeah, uh, we tend to think that success in life is making more money, is having more friends on social media, uh, being known more. And what this means is that we're putting our productivity or the things that we do before people. We're taking the people around us for granted and we're spending a lot less time with people and we're becoming what I call human doings rather than human beings. Now, people out there, you've got to ask yourself, are you a human being? Yes, you are. I am. I'm a human being. I'm not a human doing. That means that I am defined simply by being. Now, when you're with other people, you actually don't care what they do. You actually care that they're just there in front of you, that they just are, that they can be, and you can be yourself with them. You may do things together with them, but the point is being together. When we have less time for people, it means we have more isolation, more loneliness, more of a risk factor for depression. And when we put our emphasis on success, we're always reaching for something that we haven't quite obtained. And that gap between where we are in life and where we want to be, that keeps us unhappy. And for a lot of people, that's an unrealistic gap. And that in itself can lead to depression. So let's talk about authenticity, because we're not really encouraged that much to be authentic, it seems, um, in life anymore. How does not being authentic contribute to depression? If we're not being encouraged to be authentic, this is a real pity. And unfortunately, a lot of our life are now protocol driven and service driven. And you just have to appear to be caring or appear to be genuine rather than actually be caring and actually be genuine. But you know what? Our brains are actually smarter than that. We can actually tell when somebody's not being genuine. And it hurts because it means that that person is not making a real connection with you. They are making a mask or an inauthentic connection with you. Humans are social creatures. We actually need each other. We actually need to feel each other. We need to be there in flesh and blood. We have to feel we're all on the same side. If we wear masks, that means we're not connecting on a real level. 
and this really has its effect on oxytocin levels. When you hug somebody, when you make a real connection with them, you will increase your oxytocin levels and your pleasure levels, so dopamine. If you don't have that authentic connection with a love partner, parents, or with friends, then that becomes a risk factor for depression. So I sit a lot during my work. Um, how You were talking about a sedentary lifestyle. How does yeah. that contribute to depression? Well, in a sense, this is what the last episode was about. A sedentary lifestyle means we're not moving terribly much. And our bodies were built to move, to be out there doing things. And moving means that the body gets to strut its stuff. It gets to feel good. All the oxygen and the glucose is getting everywhere in the body. And the blood is flowing to take away uh, any waste material. So it keeps everything healthy. And the other thing is that any movement, any exercise rids all your muscles of the tension and the stress that they're holding on. So a sedentary lifestyle, which is the opposite of exercise, means that there's more room for chronic stress and chronic inflammation to stay in your body. How do comparisons with others contribute to depression? Somebody told me once that it's strange that we make comparisons, and this is how we make comparisons. We compare our insides with other people's outsides. And look, I'm going to take social media posts as an example. Now, we all know that when people post stuff on different social media, that they're showing their best of their life. It's rare that somebody posts, oh, had an argument with my partner yesterday, said some really stupid things. Nobody posts those sort of things. They make it look as though they're having a wow time. Oh, got some more presents, got taken out to dinner last night. And so what happens is we're all putting a false self up on social media to try to impress other people. I don't know. Maybe it's to try to make ourselves feel good about life. I don't know. But it is just not authentic. And what happens is people make comparisons with appearances. And again, there's that gap which says, I'm probably missing out. And this gap, again, leads to depression. Now, this is the thing that really gets me, the, the lack of meaning and purpose that people have. Okay, how does a lack of meaning and purpose contribute to depression? You know, I get to talk to a lot of people. And over the decades, I have spoken to a lot of people and what makes them tick, and what's important to them in their lives. And look, it's, it's sad that some scientists say that asking questions like, what does my life mean, is a silly question. Because most people that I speak to want to know what the answer to that question is. They're trying to find out what the meaning of their life is and the purpose of their life. So it is actually a vital question for most all of us. And then... I looked at a book by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist in the last century. He was a Jewish Austrian Holocaust survivor. He was put into a concentration camp during World War II, and he knew he was in a really bad situation. So what he decided to do was to make the whole situation a science experiment. And he made the experiment this. He wanted to see what helped people survive, what pe helped people have hope. 
because he saw people taking their own lives on almost a daily basis. And he found that there were three things that helped people have hope. These are the three things. The first one was love. People who loved somebody and had somebody waiting for them had a better hope of survival. Secondly, were people who had purpose, and he put himself in this camp because people who had purpose had more of a chance of survival. His purpose was, I want to survive all of this so that the world gets to hear this message. So purpose was something that protected people. And then he found that there were people who even in their despair and their suffering could find some meaning. It wasn't all in vain. And he explained it this way. He used the example of an orangutan that's being kept in a cage by some scientists. And every day these scientists come and take some blood from this orangutan. And this orangutan is suffering on a daily basis. Why? The blood that's being taken from the orangutan is being used to find cures for cancer. But you see, the orangutan doesn't know that. The orangutan doesn't realize that the orangutan's life has great meaning, even though it has suffering. So, Viktor Frankl's three things that protected people in bad situations were having love, having a purpose that you want to fulfill, and be able to find meaning, even in the most dire circumstances. Now, if they can help people survive the Holocaust, they, they will help people survive things like depression, or maybe even prevent them getting depression in the first place. But you see, here's the problem with modern living. There's a lot of people living without meaning and without purpose. And if that's you, I encourage you to find your meaning and find your purpose, even if your purpose becomes to find my meaning and my purpose. That's actually a good purpose to have. Go out there and find it. But to do that, I'm going to help you a little bit here. I'm going to talk about knowing your values. So what's a value? All right. So a value is a principle or a standard which you hold in high esteem for yourself. It is something that you believe is right. It is something that you believe is the right thing to do. Now, I'm not saying that you believe that everybody has to do it, but it's something that you believe for yourself. This is right for me. That is what you value. And you will believe that it is wrong for yourself to not do these things. When you find your values, you can use them to drive your life priorities, to drive your goals, to drive your behavior, to guide your decision making, and to guide all your intentions. Now, values are most easily understood through examples. Now, I talked about how values are mainly personable personal, but society has certain shared values. For example, we generally have the shared value of not hurting other people. In fact, this is so important that we've made laws about it. Many laws are centered around the value of not hurting other people. There are other laws that are centered around the value of honesty, right? Uh, so not stealing things, declaring things on your tax return, things like that. We value honesty 
And in the media, if politicians are not kept account, not kept to this value of honesty, then we tend to come down on them pretty hard. The other thing that society tends to value is showing kindness to other people, particularly people who are somehow in need of help. People who are marginalized, people who are disabled, people who are elderly, showing kindness to them, making sure that they're being taken care of as well. We value those things in society. Otherwise, values become relative. We may not all agree on our values, and core values may vary from person to person, but your values are important. And here's the thing. It's important that you know them. Okay, so, well, can you give us a sort of a list or something of values so yeah, that yeah. we, you know, is there, is there a place you can get a list or something? Uh, yeah, you can actually. Uh, lists of values are available on the internet. You can just type in list of values and you'll get a list that looks something like this. Family, commitment to exercise, creativity, beauty, being of service, compassion, adventure, attractiveness, stability, winning, respect, efficiency, being equal, friendship, personal growth, happiness. Now, the truth is that there are also negative things that people can uh, value as well. You can value exploiting other people, right? But you'll find yourself um, in a bit of trouble if you have values like that. But if you value things like optimism, authenticity, fairness and achievement, uh, fun and humor, uh, you'll find yourself accepted more in society. Where do values come from? They've mostly been instilled in us by parents, teachers, and our collective history, and even the legal system. And pop culture and social trends also influence our values. As we become adults, however, more and more we get to decide our values on our own. Okay, so as you know, I'm a very task-oriented person. Yes, you are. Okay, um, and I like setting myself goals. Yes. What's the difference between a goal and a value? Okay, good. Now, first I've got to say there's nothing wrong with goals. Goals are important because goals give you direction in life. But if you start off with your goals, you will choose things that are measurable because you want to know if you got it or you didn't. So when people start off putting in goals... They'll say, okay, money, weight, number of sales, winning certain things, getting a promotion, all those things are goals. But they may not reflect your values because values, the things that I mentioned before in that list, tend to be immeasurable. So a lot of people, by putting in goals, actually put things that they value down their priority list. So let's say a business person who is really driven to make a lot of sales and make a lot of money, what they really value is their family and the people in their lives. But if they're not careful, the goals that they have set themselves mean that they will not take care of the people in their lives because they're taking them for granted. So start off with your values. Use your values to drive your goals. Then if you find that one of your top values is taking care of my relationships, then you won't let your goals get in the way of your values. And that way your goals will contribute to your happiness rather than take away from your happiness. Your values will help you keep things in perspective. Your values 
will make sure that you don't put productivity before the people in your life. Okay, so I've got this big list here of values. Yes. I'm a little bit overwhelmed by it. Yes. Um, So how can I know my values? Now, this takes time. It takes a time of withdrawing from the world. You've got to take a little bit of time out and a few hours, maybe even half a day, some people more, just go to a park, a beach, a lake, or somewhere overlooking a mountain. Just be by yourself and ask yourself, what are my values? Now, I'm going to give you some questions as to how you can find your values, but One of the quickest ways of finding out your values is if you were left with just one thing in the world, everything else would be taken away. What would that be? All of a sudden, a million dollars doesn't look terribly good if you don't have any friends or anybody to love or anybody to share it with. And I really mean if it just came down to one thing in the world. That desert island question, if you were going to be alone on a desert island for the rest of your life, who or what would you want to come along? Okay, that will shortcut you to your values. However, I've given you four questions here that I want you to look at to know your values. And here are the four questions. Number one, what really motivates me? Number two, is what do I most admire in myself and in other people? Number three, what do I believe is the right thing to do? And probably the most important question is question four, when do I feel most self-fulfilled and full of self-respect? Now, They're deceptively simple questions, and I will go through them one by one because they are very, very important. Because if you can get a grasp on these questions and come close to an answer for yourself, you will know what your values are, and you can use your values to drive your goals, to keep your life in perspective, and to make sure that the things that are important get priority. Okay, so the first question. What motivates me? Without thinking too much about it, people think that money is a big motivator, but it actually isn't. What tends to motivate us is other people, and specific other people in your life will be the ones to motivate you, because you don't want to end up out of a relationship of certain people. So, Take some time to think about what motivates you. Imagine if all the pretense were taken away. What really matters? Why would you actually do something? The second question, what do you most admire in yourself and others? Again, when you first look at this question, you may come up with some superficial answers, but The superficial answers won't stay too long when you think about it a bit more deeply. It's that feeling of, ah, yes, that's what makes life worth living. When you ask yourself, what makes life worth living? What do you admire in yourself and other people? You're getting close to knowing what some of your values are. The third question is one that people have a bit of a problem with. And the question is, what do I believe is the right thing to do? 
Now, the thing is that we live in a pluralistic society. We're not here to tell other people what to do, but neither are other people here to tell you what to do. It is you alone. What do you believe is the right thing to do? And when you're honest with yourself about this, you will again discover what some of your values actually are. And of course, I'm going to encourage you to stick to your values. Okay, But it is actually important to find out what you believe is the right thing for you yourself to do. And then the last one is a bit of fun, actually. When do I feel most fulfilled and full of self-respect? That question can take you back to one of the best periods of your life. And you can ask yourself, why did that feel so good? What did I achieve or what did I uncover in myself that made me feel so good? Now, you may come up with a list of five values. You may come up with a list of 25 values. It doesn't matter. Just make sure that you know your list because this is the thing. I'm now going to encourage you to live from your values. The next time you make a decision, make sure it's actually in line with your values, not by something that's tempting you with some fleeting pleasure. Make sure you're able to stick to your values. And this can actually yield huge success in life. And to illustrate that, I'm going to give you a story. And the story is somebody that I will call Kylie. And look, Kylie was 25 when I first met her. And she knew that she was a very attractive female. And she had some success in her industry, which was sales at that time. But she wanted more. So she used her attractiveness to become the girlfriend of some high-profile businessman. She got wined and dined and taken on holidays and yachts, and she became the catalyst to a divorce or two. And she met some really interesting people. And then her pleasure became cocaine. When she came to see me, she said, my life is a train wreck. Can you please help me put it together? So we stabilized her situation because she'd actually become quite depressed through all of this, but that's another story. And once she was stable, I asked her, Kylie, what do you really want out of life? And she looked at me and said, you know, I've only ever really wanted three things out of life. And I said, what are they? And she said, I want a man who will really love me just for being myself. She said, and then I want to be a good mum. Then she said, and I want a job through which I can get some self-respect. Now, you know, that showed me her values. And we could use that to write goals that would get her life on track. And we spent months doing that. And several years ago, I got a postcard from her. She was married. She had a job as a hairdresser. She had self-respect. She wasn't a mum yet. She was yet to fulfill that. But she got some of what's called happiness because she lived from her values. She said no to the fleeting pleasures and the fleeting temptations that were actually driving her away from her true values. And she was able to keep her life on track, avoid depression, and enjoy herself. 
Hey, thanks so much for stopping by and listening to our episode. Remember to know your values to help you put people before productivity. See you next time.